Hey, Marcus. Oh, shit. He's still not here. Hey, I'm John. Sorry, it's me. Hey, Scott. How's it going? John Arminio, right? Yes, that is me. The comic guy, the movie guy, the Pennsylvania guy, the lefty guy, the good old guy. Thank you. It's it's great to be talking with movies, uh, talking with you about movies again. This is the side quest of Zebras in America, Popcorn Eschaton, where we talk about movies from a leftist and religious perspective, seeing if we can just get a little bit deeper and see what we can get out of it. Unlike our other, the other zebras, we're... We try to keep these a little bit on the shorter side to encourage you to see the movies that we talk about. If you have seen the movies that, if you have not seen the movies that we're talking about, I recommend seeing them, but my intentions usually will not be spoiler heavy. I'm, I'm looking on the way, on this imagining, on this show I'm, I'm looking more for the meanings and to me and to my beliefs, which are, I'd say, at their most generous uh, social dem, but probably more left than that. And from a faith perspective, which is that I believe uh, and I'm still figuring out what that means, but mostly from a Taoist perspective with with a lot of love for my fellow brother uh, in Abraham, Jesus Christ. What about you, John? Yeah, uh, I'm also really interested in, you know, asking the big questions and seeing how we can ask those questions through movies. And, you know, we have a filmmaker that we're talking about today who is very interested in asking those, you know, really important, deep spiritual questions through movies. And, you know, um, just like uh, Paul Schrader, who grew up Calvinist and, you know, remained a person of faith throughout, you know, his career and his life, he's always sort of shifting around and looking both inward and and outward. And, you know, I, me as a Catholic, I, I keep trying to to do the same. Yes. So we will be talking about Paul Schrader today. Uh when you proposed this episode, you proposed that we watch Mishima, uh, a story in four parts, and um, First United, right? Is that what it's called? First Reformed. First Reformed, excuse me, which is Paul Schrader's se- second most recent film. And we were actually recording yesterday, and I was like, look, obviously we're going to have to talk about Blue Collar if we're going to talk about these these contexts and you were like oh i haven't seen that one yet and i was like all right we'll re-record after you watch so and what's interesting to me is that paul schrader who is a is a film director and film writer most famous probably for his collaborations with martin scorsese specifically taxi driver if you watch his movies there, he's clearly has a religious bent. I was surprised in my research to find that he was not Catholic because, you know, Martin Scorsese movies, as we've talked about in, in some of our previous episodes, are so Catholic. But 
there's still that connection and you can just tell that he's a deeply spiritual conflicted man especially with some of the ancillary texts that i recommend that we read before we talk about this but my my brother john it was your idea to talk about mishima and first reformed tell me a little bit about why you wanted to do that and tell me a little bit about these movies well you know both of these movies are you know they feature protagonists who are in a deep crisis of faith um i think father toller in first reformed is much more self-conscious about his his faith crisis like he's he acknowledges it. He's like, I'm going through a faith crisis and I'm going to write about it in my journal. While Mishima, I think he's so... The author, Yukio Mishima, which is the subject of the film, is so self-possessed and sure of this, like, holy mission that he's on um, that he leads himself perpetually towards self-destruction. So these are two characters who become so myopic in their quest for spiritual fulfillment that they end up destroying themselves and others. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, for somebody who is clearly a very deep thinking and empathetic writer and filmmaker for Paul Schrader to explore these lives, I, I just thought we could explore them, you know, further through talking about them. Right. And tell me a little bit about the the movie Mishima. Yeah, so um, Yukio Mishima was a Japanese author um, who brilliant author. Yeah, uh, brilliant author. Very, very popular during his lifetime. Uh, grew up at, during World War II. Um, had a very troubled youth. Um, he says in his own biography that he was able to sort of lie his way out of military service and then he always felt guilty for that like he always felt he owed japan or owed himself like a death in war or a heroic death but like i even think that's a lie because i don't under i don't think it'd be possible for you to lie your way out of military service in japan in 1945 um anyway so the movie is exploring Mishima's final act as an author, as a celebrity, as a human being, which is a very public suicide after taking a general hostage in 1970. And looking back on the author's life and uh, very telling scenes from three of his novels. And it's sort right. of like a amalgamation of biography and adaptation of his work, sort of exploring his theme and his suicide through the themes of his novels. Right. With like, some amazing music and, and, and productive design. So it's very much collaboration between Paul Schrader, his cinematographer, Philip Glass, and the production designers. And Philip Glass is an excellent composer, and some of my favorite movies that he he's done scores for movies that have just had profound effects on me. In fact, some of his work um, with for a movie which I can't pronounce very well 
was a direct inspiration for some of the songs on my last album, uh, Tree. And is that uh, Koyaanisqatsi? That is it. Okay. That's one of my brother's favorite movies. He actually, My brother, Joshua, actually uh, turned me on to that movie. So It's an incredible movie. Um, mm-hmm. I watched it at the beginning of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, where my partner and I had, we, we really got into Turner Classic movies and we would just make dates out of watching movies at home. And when that came on, she was like, I, I've, we must watch this. I think it's really going to change your life, but you have to put your phone away and, and just dedicate the time to it. And it's just a meditative, beautiful and, and challenging piece about the ever-changing world. And with a just relentless score by Philip Glass. And in the Mishima film, the score by Philip Glass still has the arpeggios that you know of him, but also has these deep moments and movements that make you cry sometimes because of the the postmodern way in which Schrader makes this movie so it's a movie that's in ja- that's in Japanese but is it a Japanese film right cuz it's an american director doing styles that honor both cinem- cine- cinematic traditions mm-hmm. of the new american tradition that obviously Paul Schrader was part of and and the japanese tradition and with use of colors and he, and yeah he's he's using stories from mishima to tell the story of mishima to the context of what leads him to do what he does which is make an attempted coup that was never going to happen to to try to go back to uh, a, an almost monarchic rule at, that ends with him committing seppuku and this is a true story you can you can read about it and something that i think both you and i will will maybe have some thoughts about is that mishima is not a leftist Certainly by not. any sense of the word he's he's it's hard to say like conservative republican or whatever because it's a different country and different values but i could say that he's a writer with the strongest right-wing values that I can still enjoy his books of. Yeah, and, and, you know, one, I think, telling thing about his personal philosophy is that he said, I couldn't join the left wing because it was full. Hmm. And so just as a reaction to the fact that so many writers and artists were leftists, he just, well, I'm going to be the right-wing writer. And, you know, he was fervently anti-capitalist, but also very right-wing and continues to be sort of mythologized and worshipped by the right in Japan. But, you know, he also lived in a palatial mansion and was, you know, extraordinarily wealthy. So I think there's a lot of self-deception in in his own philosophy. Right, and a lot of self-doubt and a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. And unlike, say, a David Mamet whose fall from grace from from liberal wunderkind to 
ultra, not ultra, but fairly conservative, angry man. It's like that's really part of his identity and and his art, in my opinion, is no longer good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it. whereas the art of Mishima was always good, in fact, often great and in many times profound, uh, in spite, despite of of his his politics which i just always found very interesting yeah and he was always somebody who was looking inward and examining himself you know at least in america you take a look at right wing or right leaning artists and it seems like so many of them have bought their own bullshit and are totally incapable of, you know, self-examination. And while clearly, you know, Mishima was crafting, you know, a personal identity and a cult of personality, like he, he had his own private army and he had, you know, people mm-hmm. almost literally worshipping him. There was also clearly deep insecurities that he was struggling with his entire life. Like his whole philosophy on the human body and, and beauty and, you know, like, he chose to kill himself, you know, when he reached the age of 40 because he thought, well, now the body is going to fall apart and I will no longer be able to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, as beautiful as the art was and has, you know, he was able to physically transform himself, it, it comes from somebody who was, you know, deeply disturbed and, and deeply insecure. And ha- and is having crisis of faith in every moment mm-hmm. up until the final moment where maybe he thinks that he will be a martyr or maybe he thinks that he will be a figure that's looked at at messianic. But he also knows that that's not the case. There's in, in the film, there's just a look of dejection and detachment in his face and in his eyes. And yeah, another and then probably the one of one of if not the most famous significant right wing novelists would be Ayn Rand, right? Yeah. Where to to read her books without politic is I think impossible. And I also just don't think she's a very good novelist. And I I think that objectivism is objectively a bad (laughs) um, way to look at things. Uh, I understand the reactionary need to, to come from a Soviet country and see everything taken away from you. And then in into reaction, creating this thing where it's freedom and individuality above all but but when people try to say well well name name a successful you know socialist country or communist country and and i always respond name a successful capitalist country and to 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 say that soviet russia and the ussr is 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 a pure or perfect socialist movement is is widely flawed right yeah and 
uh, and also, as I may have said this before, but a term that I've always found to be uh, a label that I sometimes say that I heard first from Cornell, Cornell West was uh, a non-Marxist leftist in that I believe in God. So that there goes the Marxism, but you know, where my, my belief system, my ethics and values come to the conclusion that a distribution of goods, especially ones that could cause bodily harm that have been capitalized on is, is our way to salvation as, as human people. And my question for you, John, is what made you, in the context of our show, suggest Mishima? Um, you know, he is just such a, a fascinating character. And I think, yeah, I was fascinated by the idea of somebody who's both right-wing and, and anti-capitalist. Um, the inherent insecurities, I, I was... You know, somebody whose like self awareness of his own homosexuality was was triggered by an image of Saint Sebastian. Mm-hmm. You know, who's a, a a Christian saint. Um, his very you know conflicted relationship with the West. He was always searching for validation from the West, but at the same time, his whole spiritual mission was you know to free Japan from the bonds of its post-World War II treaties. Um, You you know, so... And, you know, in the film, there's a a beautiful monologue that he gives about flying through the air and sort of escaping the bonds of both the physical earth and the physical body and just being one with, you know the atmosphere and and the sky and you know transcending into beauty itself and i just thought that like you know here was this guy who was able to you know physically experience spiritual transcendence for a moment mm-hmm. and then when he landed he's like okay i'm still going to commit seppuku in a really, frankly, like pathetic attempt at, at a coup, because like if you you can watch footage of his speech, and he's standing on top of a building, and the people he's speaking to just can't hear him, because mm-hmm. of like it's too windy, and he has no microphone, and they start shouting at him. So it's it's like somebody trying to be a fascist dictator, but they forgot to plug in the microphone. Like it's just pitiful, and you know that. You know, for somebody who, like, tried to wrestle masculinity out of this, like, very frail frame, for him to end so sadly, like, it's, you know, something almost unbelievable. Um, But, you know, it really happened that way. Do you think if he had strong faith, things might not go this way? You know, I I don't know, 
because I think he Dude. he created like you know a cult of personality. He created a faith around himself. Right. He had an army. Yeah. Do you do you think Paul Schrader's faith led him to tell this this story in in pieces? Um, well, you know, Paul Schrader and his brother have had a long before this movie had you know a long relationship with Japan because Paul Schrader's first script was the. Sydney Park movie Yakuza, um, mm -hmm. which which I really enjoy. Um, his brother Leonard, who he collaborated with to make Mishima, um, lived in Japan, uh, married a Japanese woman for a long time, and so I think, you know, this is this family that was sort of in conversation with the culture of Japan for years, and you know, Mishima was somebody who was a Japanese artist in conversation with the West for so much of his life. So I can certainly understand the, the attraction to that. And, you know, I think Schrader, as somebody who's always on a spiritual quest, is fascinated by artists who are on spiritual quests of their own. I think that's why he had such a fulfilling um, and also, a, you know, collaboration with Martin Scorsese, one that was not free of conflict. But no. there's, you know, something that compels them to orbit each other. And and I think that's part of also the attraction to to Mishima himself. And in the canon of Schrader's movies, where do you place Mishima? Um, I I I don't want to rank these three. Um, because personally, I'm fairly new. To Schrader, like First Reformed was the first Paul Schrader directed movie that I saw, and I saw that in theaters. So, all, all his whole filmography that I've seen is all like in the past five years. Um, and you know, First Reformed is, you know, it's it's filmed in like four by three aspect ratio. It's incredibly stark. All the religious imagery is oppressive and confining. Mm -hmm. um, but Mishima is so lush and colorful and exploring like different aesthetics and it is you know freely diving into to different aspects of Japanese culture um, and is openly exploring and asking questions and is very much a collaboration with other artists whereas I think First Reformed is like a Paul Schrader movie uh, and then you know Blue Collar is so you know, gritty and realistic, and not self-consciously gritty and realistic, but it, it feels just like a very genuine experience of these characters in you know, a Detroit auto plant and their struggles with their union. That You know, even for a guy who, you know, thinks of himself as a writer and isn't really interested, at least in his filmmaking philosophy, for himself of, you know, like, showing off with his camera, these three films are so stylistically different that I don't want to say this one is better than this one because I appreciate them for their uniqueness. That's okay. And just to, for, for the listeners that might not be aware, Paul Schrader wrote or co-wrote Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, 
The Last Temptation of Christ, which you may remember us talking about on our first episode and bringing out the dead. Um, so his his list of of films are are heavy hitters mm-hmm. and and he's done a lot of he's made a lot of movies that are good and then he's also made cat people <laughs> which is enjoyable but not great and american gigolo which doesn't really do it for me and he's done other movies as well but when I first saw Mishima the first time, when I had first gotten into his books through my roommate at the time, dear friend and, and director, Mtume Gant, um, I was like, this movie's good, but it's a little too weird for me because I was not, like, lyrical movies weren't as, I didn't like lyrical movies as much. My, my palate had to grow. Mm-hmm. Rewatching it this week, um, the presentation, the Criterion Collections version of it is just gorgeous. And for you to tell me that he doesn't care about camera is just laughable in that movie because it's yeah. gorgeous. You you can eat it. Uh, well, I, I am quoting him from the film comment article you sent you sent me, and that was given. That was him talking like right before he would direct Blue Collar. And so that's definitely yes. his filmmaking philosophy in 1977-78. And so I'm sure after he has a couple of movies under his belt, he would then sort of maybe adapt to his right. his, his technique for, for the subject for Mishima. And, and he's a complicated man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one of the articles I sent you... Uh, he writes that he always keeps a suitcase filled with, you know, passports and foreign money and a gun just in case he has to travel or end things. He's a complicated man. And when we spoke earlier, you said you wanted to say a couple things about what he's going through right now. Yeah. Um, so a couple of days before, you know, the date of this recording, he was hospitalized and, you know, he's had some health problems in the past. And, um, you know, Martin Scorsese said a very beautiful, uh, had a very, very beautiful statement about him that was shown at Venice at a Paul Schrader tribute. So I'm sure everybody out there can Google that if they want to see it. Uh, and it's beautiful. And um, at, at Venice, you know, Paul Schrader said, I just found this like very moving that, you know, when he was a young man, he wanted to live long enough to say fuck you to as many people as possible. But now he just wants to be able to say, I love you to as many people as possible. Which as, as a man turning 40 myself, Mm -hmm. that alchemy has such a profound effect on me. Yeah. Cause I was so angry and now I'm, I'm not kind of, Mm -hmm. and, and I would rather share love than, than share hate. I'm happy to share criticism. I'm happy to build. I'm happy to not everything be hunky dory. You know, toxic positivity is is problematic in its own right. But I was I was moved by that. Yeah. You know. And you know, looking at his work, sort of in retrospect, and I know it's dangerous to examine an artist's entire body of work because by one statement they make it, you know, later in their life. But 
a lot of his characters are people who wanted to live long enough to say fuck you, and it dooms them. You know, I think you could say that about Travis Bickle. I, I think you could say that about Mishima. And I think you could say that you can say that about Father Toller. Um, in First Reform, you know, I'm sure he would never actually swear. But, you know, he's somebody who, um, you know, he can't... He, he can't escape the the bleakness of his own life to to show love to himself certainly and you know to the other people around him except for you know this one young woman who who he's he engages in a relationship with so I think it, it's it would just that in statement first from him, reformed. yeah in first reform sorry um so that statement from uh, Schrader was just one of the most, like, succinctly profound statements I can imagine an artist saying, especially considering his body of work. Right, especially considering that Blue Collar, which was my favorite Paul Schrader movie of all time, and is when when like when people are like, "Oh, what are some good movies about unions?" I'm like, Matawan. Uh, sorry to bother you, Blue Collar. Uh, Blue Collar was really hard to recommend for a long time because it wasn't available. It was really difficult to find copies of for a long time. So you had to like find VHS or it had a very short run DVD. And during the filming of it, apparently nobody liked each other. You know, uh, Blue Collar is a film about uh, Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Kodo are are having issues with their union and they try to, well, how would you describe blue collar as cause, cause you saw it with fresh eyes this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about these three guys who are, they all have uh, money trouble. Um, they're all working at a Detroit auto factory. Uh, they feel like their union is sort of ignoring them, taking advantage of them. And, you know, they're, they're friends. They've been working at this plant for years, and they decide to uh, break into the union headquarters and steal from them. Um, and it doesn't go as planned as most um, amateur movie heists, you know, do. And, uh, you know, their lives sort of spin out from there. Um, and yes. it's, can, I, uh, can I make a quick sure, pause? Sure. So we're talking about uh, appreciating art from other points of views. And the last bank heist movie that I enjoyed, I was hesitant to even talk about because it's dragged across concrete, um, directed by a conservative, starring conservatives uh, Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson, and the movie has a has a super right wing bent and it's and it's all the, the characters are terrible and it's very hard to like, but it's also a very good heist movie, even though it made me sick to my stomach mm-hmm. for weeks. Yeah, you know, that was just an aside. Sure. You know, I'm somebody who finds it and I'm very self-conscious about this, but I'm, I find it pretty impossible to separate the art from the artist 
Um, and so that definitely affects my, my viewing of things. Um, and so it's it, like, you, you know, uh, it's impossible for me to, to it, enjoy a Mel Gibson movie, but, but so, it's that view mm. that allows me to enjoy it because I hate them. And I, I'm somehow watching this, this anger and I'm, I'm entertained mm -hmm. whether I think Mel Gibson should have a career or not. No, I don't. Um, doesn't, you know, doesn't go against the fact that he does. And, and I, I would not pay to watch that movie. I watched that movie, um, on, on a, uh, foreign screener website if you know what i mean um i don't i will not line the pockets of people of artists directly that are that go against my values it can be a little bit harder on a broad scale i uh, you know there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and yet sometimes i have to use amazon because it's my only option and i'm not going to judge families using their food stamps to buy what we would call unhealthy food to feed their families. It just is what it is. And, uh, anyways, I'm, I'm going on a big, big yeah. aside. Well, blue collar. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, just to, to cap that real quick, you know, so for somebody like me with that, you know, perspective, a movie like Mishima, a movie about an artist whose biography is inextricably linked with their art made by an artist whose biography is inextricably linked with their art. It, it, it's just bound to, to speak to me on, on a very deep level. So anyway. Um, yes. And, and sometimes it can be challenging and sometimes there are artists where you really can separate mm -hmm. but it, but yeah, when their art is so intrinsical, when it's so idiosyncratic, yeah, it's pretty difficult. Yeah. You know, I will, I have no problem saying that I will never listen to R. Kelly on purpose again. And I also think that his songwriting was on par with Bob Dylan in many ways. And it could be that he was illiterate. It could be he, he had a point of view that I had never heard before. But I also will never listen to his music again. Because because I cannot separate it because his music is so intrinsically linked to him and the things that he's done allegedly are too much. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I yeah, I know we're getting far afield, but like and I'm glad and I'm glad Woody Allen got canceled because I think his movies are ass. I think he's overrated. He's got like three good movies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I've. I know personally artists in my brilliant artists in my life. I know personally artists in my life who have died and that are brilliant that the rest of the world will never know. So I don't have time in my life to make allowances for like <laughs> rapists and, you know, no. spousal abusers. Like there's people no. making great art everywhere in the world all the time. So if, if you're, like Eliza, Eliza Hitman mm -hmm. is, is non-problematic and a great person and is making movies. And Lucretia Martel is a great person who's making movies. There's plenty of people that are making great movies. Yeah. I know, I, I know that it's complex and also it's not. Like I have, I don't know 
if Woody Allen is guilty of the things that he was accused of, but the the moment it bothers me enough that I and he did make the movie Manhattan. It bothers me enough that I'm like, I don't need to watch these movies ever again. And I don't it doesn't matter again how talented I thought R. Kelly was. It it's it's not happening. Yeah. And and I'm also not gonna tell somebody to stop watching Chinatown or, or whatever. But anyway, uh <laughs> a blue collar. Right. Blue collar. Um so you know I realize that this is sort of like a dream cast for a first-time director in a lot of ways. Like, Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yaffa Kato, like, you know, acting studs for real. But also... And 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 really good-looking at that time. Mm-hmm. And they were all fighting on set. Yeah. yeah, so it's also like, like, these are three guys who know what they want and know what they can do and do not suffer fools. Um, and so if you have a problem with any one of them on set as a first-time director, I'm sure that could cause a lot of headaches for everyone involved. So the fact that this movie is as good as it is, I think, is kind of astonishing. And, you know, all their performances are are great. You know, and, and I think you, even with you giving me the primer of saying that this is Richard Pryor's best dramatic role, I was not prepared for how good he was. Though Jojo Dancer is a slept on beautiful film. That one I have never seen. Uh, I've I, I know it, about it, but I've it's never a seven. Yeah. Okay, it, well for for the uninitiated, it's the closest thing we're get you'd get to a semi autobiograph semi autobiographical biopic of Richard Pryor, including the the burning, the 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 crack scene, the crack story where he lit himself on fire smoking crack cocaine uh and ran down the streets so it's 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 very good movie it's it has some imperfections and it was definitely hated on when it came out but i think nowadays understanding the trauma that richard Pryor went through it has a different it's just contextually different and i think it's more profound Mm -hmm. So those, you know, I just wanted to point that out. I'm sorry, you were saying? Uh, no, just that, you know, like, like these three guys, and you, you were saying that, that nobody got along on set, but, you know, I just really have believed in their friendship and their willingness to, to go to bat for each other, you know, at least in the beginning of the film. Like, there's this moment where, you know, after the robbery... They're like, you know, okay, somebody gave a very, um, like, vague description of two black guys and a white guy, so we can't be seen together, you know, in in front of our coworkers. And Harvey Gaitel and Yafet Kato give each other this, like, real awkward, like, bro shake. And they're making each other laugh about how awkward it is. And it's just this really cute moment between two friends that seems incredibly organic and believable and so for them to capture those kind of moments amidst that conflict on set i I think you know it's one of the things that makes this film really interesting but again it also it also goes to paul schrader saying that he was going for 
his career was fuck you, you know, mm-hmm. at the at the time. And, you know, there was a time where making movies was very stressful and you there there are Fellini movies that entire scenes had to be overdubbed because he was just screaming at his actors all the time. And then there's um shit. What's the director who did I Heart Huckabees? David O. Russell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like you see these scenes of David O. Russell just being a dick to to all these people and turning out big surprise, uh not that great of a dude who's who's made some excellent movies, not that great of a dude. So who knows? But this movie in retrospect has has strong socialist undertones as it's about a union it has some strong christian undertones as there's some sacrifices and some judases and some things of that nature and it's also a fantastic movie and i was i can't believe that when we were planning to talk about mishima and first reformed that i didn't think to be like oh we got to throw in blue collar as well yeah you know and I just, you know, as, as I'm always fighting the instinct that I am like an inexperienced cinephile or a novice movie watcher. Um, and so, yeah, I just didn't even think to um, watch this before, you know, those before our, our conversation. Do you like movies? Very much so, yes. Are you interested in unpacking them? Oh, for sure then what whatever level quote unquote cinephile you are matters not do you think i'm a cinephile yes right but i i'm reluctant to call myself that you know what i mean but i talk about movies a lot i have a i've i have a podcast of over 150 episodes talking about movies so it is what it is and you're just stacking up and you also now have a sort of a podcast about movies. So, you know, you have every right to, and you have every right to have not seen a movie. Thank you. I, we're not gatekeeping. Yeah. We're not gatekeeping movies anymore. Yeah. Do you think Jesus would gatekeep a movie? Not at all. No, certainly not. So speaking of Jesus, let's, let's talk a little bit about the third film, the, I you know it's funny Trinity or whatever yeah uh, in this in this thing and I before saying anything these these are my three favorite Paul Schrader movies and these are not his only good ones but he he has some up and downs yeah. and he he made a movie with a, a script by Brett Easton Ellis starring uh, alleged bad person the porn star James Dean and Lindsay Lohan. And that movie was hard to get through. There's an art. There's a. There's some good articles about why that movie was a mess, and why. Yeah. Why. Why it just. It didn't quite work. And the. At the time, I think that they were. They did a very bad job of painting. Uh, Lindsay Lohan as as the problem in that movie, and I really don't think that was the case. Yeah, film and music critics really like to personally insult famous young women and it's unsavory 
Yeah, and it's just like we're seeing it now. We're like, damn, like people were really fucked up to Britney mm-hmm. Spears. Like the patriarchy's really made a mess of like not being nice to women and and just like the way as a culture, the way that we treat the mental health needs of most people, particularly non-white men, is is gross. Yeah, we're we're doing our best to uh, make it worse. You, you know, like uh, with with both Lindsay Lohan with, with Britney Spears with really you know any any young actors out there who's you know immediately ob- objectified uh, by you know probably their own publicists and, the, and their own you know agents and managers. Right. And, and someone that didn't quite get that, get that going who, but was, was a young actress in the boom of, of young actresses and actresses in the aughts and who is in a film with Lindsay Lohan, Mean Girls, is Amanda Seyfried. Seyfried? I'm never sure how to pronounce it. I, I, I say, I say Seyfried. Seyfried, who is in, First Reformed. Now, First Reformed at at its base is a movie about a man of God who has every reason to have lost his faith. Um, care to expound a little bit? Yeah, so uh, Ethan Hawke, um, you know, in maybe my favorite performance of his, uh, plays Father Toller, um who is the priest of this sort of museum piece church called First Reformed, which is attached to a much larger kind of mega church. And he he had a son who he encouraged to follow him in his former life, was in the military. He encouraged his son to join the military shortly after 9-11, and his son died within six months of going to Iraq. And after that, his wife left him, and he's sort of been spiraling spiritually since then and you don't really know that and probably died yeah, you don't really know the details but he's clearly unhealthy cl- clearly not taking care of himself you know at one point he's mixing whiskey and pepto-bismol in one of the most stark images of of the film one of the most fucked up things i've seen in yeah. a movie in some ways <laughs> and i've seen some really messed up movies but there was something about mixing the Pepto-Bismol with the alcohol that gave me an incredibly visceral reaction. So yeah, so this is a man who's just not treating himself well, wants to do right, is doesn't know if he's being challenged like a Job-like character. But again, every inkling leads me to believe that he's dying. It's not, it's not said, but it's, it's heavily implied. And he's, He's a mess, and he meets this young couple who are having crises of faith and are um, wh- how how would you describe them? Yeah, so uh, a young couple, Amanda Seyfried is pregnant, maybe seven or eight months, and she's very concerned about her husband, who is deeply involved in the environmentalist movement, but has become obsessed 
he can't think about or talk about anything else. He's constantly researching, you know, climate change and pollution and is very concerned for her safety. And so she approaches Father Toller to, to counsel her husband. And he's not spiritual. She's a spiritual one. And he, as, you know, down the rabbit hole as he is with his own life, he clearly sees that there's something disturbed about the husband. And they have a very profound um, sort of philosophical and spiritual debate about whether it's a sin to bring life into this world where we are destroying it. And, you know, the father asks Ethan Hawke, you know, a really difficult question. Like, if if we get to 2050 and, you know, all the coasts, all the, every coastal city in the world is underwater and, you know, civilization is collapsing, how could he look at his daughter in the eye when she asks him, how could you let this happen? You knew this was going to happen. Why did you bring me into this world? To what? To die for your sins, right? And I think, you know, so Ethan Hawke tries his best to counsel this guy who's clearly spiraling. Um, but instead of showing up for their second meeting, um, the father kills himself in a park. And... Uh, Ethan Hawke then has to, you know, tell the wife, and they they continue to see each other, even as Ethan Hawke's health continues to get worse and worse, and it all approaches this uh, 250th consecration of the First Reformed Church, which is um, going to be sort of the, the climax for the film. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to say too much about the final yeah. parts. Because I really feel that you have to watch the movie. But, like, again, it's just this dude that's got his finger on the pulse. Like, the the eco, the the ecological ramifications that are talked about in this movie that, that a few years ago are what people are talking about now. And I feel like this movie is slowly becoming like a cult classic amongst... Uh, people who are worried about the world and global warming and the climate crisis, which is getting worse and worse every, every year and climate anxiety and, and, you know, Jesus, Jesus was Jewish and um, reverence of, of the land. We have several holidays that are about farming and fruits and vegetables and the earth. So I, I think Jesus would be in line with trying to save the world. And do I think that, that an act of eco-terrorism could, could save the world and change what's going on in our changing landscape? I do not. And obviously admonish any sort of thing like that and don't think that that's the way to get things done by, by, by a large margin. And the character that, that Ethan Hawke's Ethan Hawke is, is working with is, is pretty much 
radicalized and ready to do some major shit and then kills himself instead. And it's just, it's just a really powerful movie, man. Yeah. You know, I've, I've all my life, I've, (laughs) I've, I've struggled with, you know, the prevailing, you know, economic and spiritual philosophy in America that seems to sort of venerate capitalism so much. But growing up, I was just always thinking like if, if God gave us this world to care for, shouldn't we be fighting to preserve it and and keep it as beautiful as possible? Like, you know, whenever we as Americans talk about the beauty of our, you know, national parks system, like, shouldn't we like take that to heart, like recognize the, the holiness that is in the earth. And, you know, I think this is a movie that is wrestling with, with those questions and, you know, showing the hypocrisy of, of a church that is willing to take money from a very, you know, if, if this movie was released now, like it, it would seem like somebody who would be Trump's like energy secretary. Um, this guy bulk who's, who's funding a lot of the mega churches operations and, and is funding the 250th uh, consecration and like the scenes with him are just so infuriating because you know that no matter how how right and how accurate and how eloquent Father Toller is with the describing the state of the world, it's not gonna move this guy because that's gonna interfere with his bottom line. Have you read Frederick Beekner? I have not. Oh man, uh, I have. I'm. I'm. There's a book that I'm going to send you called "The Sacred Journey," and it's about Frederick Beekner, who was both a, was both a novelist and a religious man. And this book was recommended to me when I was fervently agnostic atheist, and was like, "Don't worry, it's just a really great book about growing up and the faith." peace is only as important as you make it and there's a deeply moving book that i feel like if these characters were reading they might have found a little more hope this movie is very hopeless and hopeful but it's it's intense and and to 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 so it's it's my third favorite Paul Schrader movie with Blue Collar being number two and Mishima being number one. But they might as well be all number one because of how good I think they are and the fact that um, these are all movies made in different decades, many years apart from each other, and still hold yeah. up, says a lot about the power of, of Paul Schrader. And... You know, I realize that, you know, discussing this movie about, you know, a very eloquent, intelligent, environmentally minded priest, you know, who, who, who talks a lot about spiritual philosophy and, and environmentalism, it, it might seem like Schrader would be using Toller as sort of a stand-in for polemics 
about those those topics, but there's moments in the film where we see the sort of cracks in his in Father Toller's facade and and his inability to 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 see what he's becoming, you know. And um, Cedric the Entertainer plays Father Jeffers, who's sort of the um, the very public face minister of of this sort of mega church. And even though he's morally compromised, he's not like a Joel Austin figure. Um, no. He's somebody who is very conscious of his mission to, you know, minister to to his congregation. He's and he's reaching out to Father Toller, saying like, "We need to get you in rehab. You're clearly in need of help. How can we help you?" Yeah, yeah. And there's this you? moment where, you know. Father Toller is just so determined to be on his mission. And Father Jeffers says, you're always in the garden. It's always the darkest hour for you. And that hit me really hard the first time I saw it. Um, Because, you know, I think it's always easy to, to, like, you know, when you're depressed, when you're, when you're going through dark phases to be like to to become myopic about that darkness and because and then it's like there's always yeah. something yeah and and there's a, a beautiful part in this movie where father toller says like despair is the purest form of, of pride because it, it it's you saying that you have you're more creative than god because you can't see a way to hope if if you're in, in despair and so right. I, I thought that uh that was a, just another f- fascinating philosophical terms so for this movie to use father jeffers to to sort of you know undercut um father toller's you know like self-aggrandizing and almost holier than thou sort of mission you know i, I think speaks to how well considered this movie is you know, spiritual and philosophical yes and as we wrap up i just want to say that i really enjoyed our contextualizations of these movies and i really enjoy the the point of view you bring to it and the lens you bring to it and even though we didn't go super in depth into the praxis of it I don't think it's necessary because because these movies will speak for themselves and give you some ideas on your on one's journey. And I want to talk to you off record. So for our next our next episode, I would like to try to um, cover shine some light on on some at, at the very least non male directors and some non-white directors yeah as much as i love or 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 as much as i love paul schrader or at least some uh he has a very male focus especially in these three movies yeah so i'd like to try to to um take a look at some other stuff in the interest of of showing different ideas diversity if you're just from a purely selfish standpoint Diversity gives you new stories and new vantage points 
And it's awesome too. And they go, oh, you're a white knight. Like, no, knights are dumb. And I just, I, I'm so against this idea that, that diversity is somehow an issue. Yeah, I mean, Hello? <laughs> uh, if you want to take a, another cor- cornerstone of my spiritual philosophy, Star Trek, uh, infinite diversity, infinite combinations. Uh, it's it it's just gonna make things better. Like you're gonna have access to more interesting ideas, more interesting people, and that's awesome. Right, and so. Uh, and I think we can go into greater detail with that if we have some some movies to to mm-hmm. rock on. Uh, do you do you have any closing thoughts, my friend? Um, no, just that I really enjoyed talking about these three movies with you. When I was saving Blue Collar for you know a special occasion because I was expecting a good movie, and so I'm, I'm glad it it was this occasion to to talk about Paul Schrader with you. I really appreciate it. Let us be the reason that we break out the special occasion stuff.